Michigan healthcare policy is never standing still. Thanks to rural health policy advocates, we have representation among policymakers, but every hospital needs to be actively aware of the changes in healthcare policy and how they impact hospital operations. So, how do rural hospitals navigate the ever changing landscape of healthcare policy? By initiating connections with state policymakers, staying up to date with policy changes, and working to understand how each healthcare policy influences rural healthcare. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm JJ Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to episode 139 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Rachel, I know I've said this before, but this is one of my favorite guests. Oh, yes. Um, Incredibly smart, brilliant uh, person who has passion and has a purpose in helping small rural hospitals just like Hillsdale. And uh, I'm excited today because our guest is someone who not only represents hospitals across the state, but she's often an advocate for hospitals like Hillsdale uh, in terms of shaping policies at the legislative level representing hospitals across the state of Michigan to make sure that our voice in healthcare is heard around the legislature. I'm very excited uh, today for that conversation. That's right. We are talking with a return guest who is an expert in the ebb and flow of not only healthcare legislation, but the details of the policy within that legislation. Our guest today is Lauren Lapine, Senior Director of Legislative and Public Policy at the Michigan Health and Hospital Association, also referred to as the MHA. Welcome back to Rural Health Rising, Lauren. Thank you for for having me back. I really appreciate it. So to start, Lauren, for those of our listeners who did not hear the last episode that you were on, why don't you just give us a little background about yourself, uh, your professional background, and your work at MHA? Happy to do so, Rachel. Um, So uh, I've been at the Michigan Health and Hospital Association for coming up on three years now. Um, And before I came to the MHA, I was at an organization called the Michigan Public Health Institute, um, where I focused on state and federal um, public health policies and initiatives. Um, So my role at the MHA, I was originally hired um, as the director of small and rural hospitals and policy programs. And I mentioned that because that was the first time that the MHA um, had intentionally created a position that was um, focused entirely on our small and rural members. Um, So really focusing on members like you all at at Hillsdale Hospital. Um, And as my role has evolved here, I still have that focus, um, that inherent everyday focus on small and rural hospitals, but I've also um, taken on more of a leadership role in our policy space. Um, So I am the association's lead for behavioral health um, now, in addition um, to our uh, rural health policy. Um, A little bit more about me. My background is in public health. I have a a master's of public health from uh, Michigan State University, um, and I'm currently in the um, right about the the dead center of uh, pursuing my doctorate of public health through the University of Illinois, Chicago. So I've really enjoyed my time here at the MHA uh, thus far, and I would say one of my um, favorite things to do, truly, um, is to visit and get within the four walls of our member hospitals and health systems. Um, So I'm happy to engage in a conversation with with you both about rural policy today. Well, we're going to definitely do that. I'm excited because there's a lot to talk about right now in the state of Michigan uh, as it relates to healthcare, regardless of the size of the hospital. A lot of lot of changing landscape. Um, we had one of your colleagues on not too long ago uh, sharing uh, some of the challenges 
uh, facing the Michigan legislature in terms of a house divided and uh, how that impacts uh, votes that are going to be taken and uh, maybe where support is uh, one way or the other for hospitals. So I do look forward to talking to you a little bit more today about some of the work that you've been doing. But before we do that, um, we do this on every episode and you've done it once before. And this allows for an opportunity not only for us, but also for our listeners to get to know you just a little bit better. And it's just simply the why. We want to know what is Lauren's why? What what gets you up out of bed in the morning to do the work that you do each and every day, a very tedious work, uh, at times some of the most uh, treacherous uh, work conditions, having to deal with some of the politics, which anymore can be brutal and nasty. Uh, it's it's taken off uh, in a direction that many of us just cringe at. So you're involved in that. You're you're right there, and you're you're dealing with those issues. So what is your why? So it's a really good question, JJ, and I love that you that you and Rachel start um, each podcast with this question. Um, I've always been interested in health broadly. Um, when I was much younger, I I thought that I wanted to go to medical school. Um, and as I progressed through my education, I became more and more interested in, um, in population health and public health. Um, and, um, I found it really interesting that we can, um, create policy solutions that impact entire populations. Um, so while that one-on-one encounter that a physician or another healthcare provider, um, might have is incredibly important, um, I became really interested in, um, how some of those uh, policy decisions can drive some pretty um, significant change. And as I progressed through my education, I also learned um, that I really love um, problem solving and I really love a challenge. Um, And if you work in anything in the advocacy or policy space or anything in healthcare, um, there are a lot of challenges. Um, there's there's no shortage of challenges. Um, and so <laughs> no, one of the no, things no. that I truly enjoy about my uh, my job is um, that there um, are always problems to solve that don't have easy solutions. Um, and I also really like the variety of um, of topics um, that I get to work on. So I was thinking of a good example where um, I might wake up and come to work one day and focus really hard on advocating for, um, a change in the regulatory space um, to allow for sharps containers to be emptied less <laughs> frequently. Um, and yeah. that is a request that we received from rural hospital, a rural hospital member um, that was um, kind of unnecessarily having to go through this um, rigorous process of emptying their sharps container, um, and they weren't full. And the next day, I could come into the office and um, have to work on making sure that the new new-ish at this point um, policy around rural emergency hospitals, um, working to make sure that there was legislation in place to allow for mm-hmm. any interested hospital in our state um, to apply to convert to that new CMS designation. So I, I use those two examples because it shows just the the wide breadth of issues that we get to work on um, in the um, the healthcare policy space and in the rural policy space in particular. Um, so that kind of comes back to my why. I've always been interested in trying to um, make improvements in the the health and healthcare space broadly, but I also just really love problem solving um, and trying to um, work with a variety of stakeholders and parties um, to try to create a policy change um, that's uh, beneficial for all. So no two days are the same, it sounds like. No. Uh, arguing for sharp container disposal uh, timelines to uh, really saving uh, rural hospitals 
uh, through the Emergency Act. So obviously you do that with uh, passion, and that's one of the great things about you uh, is that you will tackle any issue, no matter the size. And I think that speaks volumes to the commitment that not only you, but MHA has placed on all the members. Um, And it's interesting because, you know, as we interview more and more folks from MHA, we're hearing that we're one of the few states that has every hospital participating in their state association, which is very rare. But but that is a testimony uh, about the work that's being done by you and your colleagues each day to take on issues like this. Who would have thought to call the MHA to say, we need sharp container regulation? Uh, (laughs) And who would have thought that, you know, you'd be rolling out the ERC and uh, PPP and some of the things that you've done uh, with workforce education and tackling some of those issues. But it really just speaks volumes to the fact that you're representing uh, members who that's their top priority at the day. You're going to make it your top priority. So I, I appreciate your why more now than I ever have before. Thank you. So, Lauren, what is top of mind right now for leaders shaping rural health care policy? We know there is a lot going on in the healthcare space in general. Um, but when we look at rural healthcare policy, what are some of those top priorities? Yeah, that's a that's a really great um, great question, Rachel, and one that um, if I if I think deeply about it, I think there are three main um, categories in terms of policy issues that um, that we're really seeing across the country and in Michigan um, rising to the forefront. The first the first policy issue that I would share um, is in the maternal health space. Um, and we've we've seen for many years um, that um, access to obstetric care is top of mind um, in rural areas. Um, we know that it's important uh, to maintain access to birthing services in communities all over the state, um, but that's becoming more and more challenging in our rural areas. Um, and with rural hospitals, we know that being creative um, in how we support rural hospitals to maintain, maintain those services is critical. Um, mm-hmm. As you both know, um, maintaining uh, birthing services in a community is uh, is quite costly. Um, there are specialized physicians that have to um, be on call at all times um, to meet the necessary regulatory requirements um, to maintain birthing services. Um, and we also know that the demographics of rural areas um, can make it really challenging to maintain the, that service line. Um, our rural areas tend to have older populations and there might be a smaller proportion of birthing persons living in the community. Um, And as we have um, a lower volume of patients that are seeking those services, it can make it more challenging from a financial and operations perspective to maintain those. So we're seeing some innovative models coming out from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, that specifically try to um, provide some flexibilities and creative space for our rural members to maintain some access to birthing services in a community. Um, So that's one area where I would say um, we will likely continue to see um, more and more uh, policy focus on maintaining um, obstetrics care and um, avoiding what we're calling maternity deserts. Um, So that's that's one important piece that I would raise raise up. Um, The second is in behavioral health. Um, And behavioral health has been a a topic of the MHA strategic action plan and drives, uh, which is a document that drives uh, much of the work of the association within a program year. Behavioral health has been a focus for the last couple of years. And um, JJ could speak to this well, uh, being an MHA board of trustee member, but it's really a focus of our work this year. Um, We know that COVID, um, that the COVID pandemic really exacerbated uh, the behavioral health crisis that we're seeing 
um, not only in our state, but across the country. Um, Significant. So we know that we need access to more services. Um, we need access to different types of services. Um, we need more providers um, that are working in the behavioral health space. Um, and, and that is something that is even more, I would say, pronounced in rural areas. So we have, it, it's, it's common knowledge that we don't have enough psychiatrists across the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. to provide the level of care that we know we need. And it's pretty hard um, to recruit and retain a psychiatrist in some of our rural areas of the state. Um, mm -hmm. So that's where opportunities for, um, for loan repayment um, and uh, tuition support and things of that nature become even more support in rural areas. We also have to think um, more creatively. And there's currently a, a couple of bills that are in the um, that are before the legislature um, that are uh, specific to adding nurse practitioners and physician assistants within Michigan's mental health code. And I mentioned that because um, many times in rural areas, it can be easier um, to recruit and retain nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And if we can have NPs and PAs added into our mental health code, that will hopefully enable mm -hmm. um, an increase in access to care, particularly in our rural areas. Um, so those bills were just up for their first hearing last week in the Behavioral Health Subcommittee within the Michigan House of Representatives. Um, and the MHA is very supportive of, of those, that package of bills. Um, so we'll hope, we are hopeful that we'll see those um, move in the next couple of months, depending on, um, depending on what the legislature does. Um, the third piece that I would um, elevate is really workforce and the healthcare workforce. And again, um, that has been a, a, a topic of the MHA um, strategic action plan for a number of years. We were successful um, in obtaining $225 million um, to support healthcare recruitment, um, training, and retention. Um, and mm -hmm. the MHA served as the fiduciary and really distributed those, fun those funds to all of our um, member hospitals and health systems. And I would draw listeners' attention to the MHA website, um, where we have a really comprehensive report that summarizes um, just a couple of the, the main takeaways of how rural hospitals, um, in particular, used uh, the portion of that $225 million that they received. Um, so we know that we have a shortage of healthcare workers, um, and we're working very hard um, to try to address that. I think that will also be um, a, a clear focus um, for the coming years in our state in the policymaking space. Um, you saw the Mich uh, Michigan, um, we got our first ever uh, growth officer, population growth officer. Yeah, saw that, yeah. Yep, and uh, they published their first uh, report um, that focuses on how to uh, increase population across our state. Um, and there's certainly a focus within that report um, on the importance of um, recruiting and retaining uh, healthcare professionals. Um, so it's, it's going to continue to be a, a focus for our state. There's no easy quick fix, um, but we know that we have some policy levers that we can pull um, to try to increase the number of healthcare workers that we have working within our hospitals and health systems. So those are kind of the three, I would say, top um, healthcare policy issues um, that, that we've seen of focus as of late. Well, I think we can close in prayer on that. Uh, you know, that's a lot. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack right there, and, and I'm not going to do that. But even in, in each individual area, so much more to unpack. You know, when you think about the mental health issues that we're uh, challenged with right now in the state, uh, just working on that has so many other components. You know, it's about recruitment. 
It's about retention. It's about building a workforce. Uh, it's about access through building space. It's about, you know, expanding, um, you know, post-discharge for behavioral health for clinics. Um, and all of that has a component in and of itself. You know, there's 10 different things going on each one of these. So it's obviously a tremendous amount of work uh, that you and your team have cut out for you. But you're looking at every aspect of it from how do you grow the talent? How do you recruit to those areas? Then advocating for loan reimbursement and then advocating for continuing ed. All of those things include uh, people practicing, you know, providers practicing at the top of their license, those type of things. So certainly a lot to unpack there. We look forward to the new uh, year for us, the new calendar year, in which many of these uh, objectives will have been met by MHA and the work that you're doing with individual members. But what I want to focus on right now is really from your, your perspective and your opinion, you know, what is missing from healthcare policy today that prevents rural hospitals from making these needed changes or, you know, substantially addressing issues that they're facing? Yeah, that's an excellent question, JJ. Um, And one of the things that comes to mind is truly the increased costs, um, primarily driven um, by rising labor expenses and inflation in recent years that have um, truly forced hospitals to make really difficult decisions um, about operations. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that, I, I think it's important to raise this because Rural hospitals um, tend to be in a a notably different position than some of our urban-based health systems that can rely on economies of scale um, compared to smaller hospitals uh, Mm -hmm. that have more of a challenge uh, doing that when it comes to purchasing, staffing, you know, um, bringing in new technologies, all of that. Um, And due to some of those challenges, it can be more difficult for rural hospitals to make um, capital investments and some true um, infrastructure improvements. And I would say that's something that um, that I'm hearing more and more often from our rural hospitals across the state when I get a chance to visit with them. It can be really challenging to um, tap into funds um, to make some of those operational and infrastructure investments. And there really isn't a good uh, a good pool of money at the federal level to do that, um, which makes it even more challenging many times at the state level. Um, So we've been focusing on um, finding, again, some creative solutions um, where our rural members in particular can tap into some operational funds to make some of those investments um, and improvements that have been put off, uh, particularly during COVID. Um, So the the USDA um, has some rural um, infrastructure development funds that we have had a couple of hospitals across the state tap into. Um, And uh, while it can be a a pretty arduous application, um, there is a a relatively significant amount of funding that hospitals can access to make some of those improvements. So we've had um, hospitals across the state that have tapped into that USDA fund um, to uh, redo their emergency department entry to make it more uh, friendly and accessible for individuals that um, have some uh, level of physical disabilities. We've had folks um, that have use some of those dollars um, to change the structure of their emergency departments and their inpatient inpatient units um, so that they are more equipped to handle another um, pandemic in the future if uh, if we are to have one. Um, and so I would really say that we are we are trying our best to tap into some of the existing grant dollars um, that are out there um, for our rural hospitals um, so that that folks can really tap into that kind of funding to make those needed investments. Um, and improvements, because we know that people like going um, 
to a well-equipped hospital and they deserve to go to a well-equipped hospital. Um, but we need to make sure that our rural members in particular have access to that, um, that type of resource. So what is, and this may kind of play into what you just talked about a little bit, but um, what's being done to support rural access to health care? And you talked a little bit about this with um, OB services as well. And how are current policies addressing health equity issues? When we talk about, you know, health equity across the board uh, from whether you live in a rural, suburban or urban community, um, what are we seeing there? Yeah, um, that's a, another good question. And I would say one of the, the big pushes, um, I would say, in the national space to ensure that we keep uh, healthcare in rural communities has been the, um, the advent of the rural emergency hospital model. And that is a model that is by no means perfect for every community, mm-hmm. um, but it is another tool in the toolbox um, to maintain some access to rural care. Um, and I would say we've had a, a couple of member hospitals across the state that have considered that model. Um, we have one hospital in the state of Michigan that has converted to a rural emergency hospital, and that is um, uh, Sturgis Hospital in Sturgis, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're hopeful that we will um, continue to learn from their experience, um, trying out that new model of care and receiving the increased reimbursement mm-hmm. um, that comes with the REH model. Um, and mm-hmm. that, again, is just one tool in the toolbox. Um, but we know that until we are able to make some improvements at the federal level um, in reimbursement rates um, and outpatient rates, we're we're going to have to think creatively in terms of how to keep um, hospitals in, in rural communities. And I think the, the REH model is a way to um, try to maintain access to some degree in a, in a rural community. Um, in terms of health equity in particular, um, we've been doing a lot of work in, again, the maternal health space um, and uh, trying to identify evidence-based interventions that um, address the high rates of maternal mortality and morbidity um, that we see in communities across our state and our country. Um, so the MHA had convened a, a health equity task force um, last year that is going to continue its work into this year um, that really focuses on bringing together um, diverse stakeholders and partners across the health space to try to identify solutions for how we can provide better care to, to birthing persons that are coming to our hospitals and health systems um, in a really exciting time of their life um, to uh, bring new life into the world. So that work is very much going to continue and ramp up. Um, and again, the, the need to think creatively about how to maintain uh, excellent maternity care in rural areas um, is one where, um, where we're going to need to put a lot of focus. You know, obviously, a uh, significant amount of work around all of these initiatives. And uh, I would just say firsthand, uh, having uh, the privilege of sitting around the table with MHA is the fact that you are addressing, you know, access in rural communities and you are uplifting, you know, those hospitals looking for new ways. But, you know, it really comes down to what we know. We can't cut our way to success. You know, patients want more. Uh, patients have in rural communities lack of transportation, um, you know, higher Medicaid population. It's very difficult. And so uh, it really comes down to payment reform. There is no there's no easy way around this. I mean, we can talk all day long about putting up new infrastructures or, you know, those types of great, you know, aesthetically uh, things. But at the end of the day, it's really when we get paid less 
money than it costs to deliver the service, which is Medicaid today. Now, I know MHA has been working on some things, which we'll talk about in the future, to help us get through that uh, barrier and, and break that wall, which is you've got to have uplifts. You've got to have payment structures that are going to at least cover expenses and that create some type of margin for hospitals. Uh, and now the big systems, Rachel, believe it or not, are starting to to talk about this. Right, and, right. And you, how long have we faced it? Two, three decades? I mean, forever, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as far as anyone alive today is concerned, yeah. pretty much forever. Yeah, but now the big systems are saying, and no offense to the big systems, right. but they, they, they did not have the disproportionate mm-hmm. number of Medicaid patients that we're starting to see. And then payments coming from even commercial insurance, you don't have the luxury of sitting down and being the big brute in the room to negotiate mm-hmm. everything to your positive. Right. And as a result of that, the payers, including state and federal government, which represents 70% of our payer mix, but even the commercial, mm-hmm. uh, when you sit down with those payers and you're negotiating, you no longer have the upper hand. Right. You know, it is, it, it's a different environment in negotiations mm-hmm. today than it was even 14 years ago when I started. And so the bigger systems are now realizing, wow, we're getting, getting less reimbursement, you know, even from some of the commercial payers, which mm-hmm. have traditionally been good payers. And then you couple that with, you can't even cover the cost of doing business. So all that to say, that was an infomercial paid for by JJ. <laughs> <laughs> All that to say that at the end of the day, we have to look at payment reform. Mm-hmm. We have to look at that. That is the number one. That's the root cause of all of these other issues that are important to address as best we can along the way. But we just can't lose sight of that reimbursement issue because no. until that gets fixed, we're going to keep having to kind of just plug along and try to do a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And uh, as I was talking with Adam, one of your colleagues who was uh, here with us at the hospital and also did a podcast episode with us uh, recently, it I, I kind of think of it like you're plugging the holes in the boat, but eventually we're going to run out of fingers and toes and have nothing left to plug the holes with. So until we fix that key problem, everything else, while it's important, it, we're going to keep having those issues mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. different areas, to JJ's point. Yeah, and, and so all that to say... Obviously, you're you're on every front uh, dealing with those issues. You can't tackle payment per se, even though you have in different venues. But, you know, this is really something that the federal and state government has to look at if they want hospitals to survive in this environment today. And that means better outcomes health-wise, right? That means that your laboring mom isn't traveling 45 minutes with an abruption and dies. Uh, it means that, you know, services that are rendered for even diagnostic testing to, to detect something before and we can prevent it. Uh, those are the types of things that lead to obviously better health outcomes, but if not addressed locally, will lead to higher cost in the healthcare uh, because now we have to address it, you know, post-incident, post-significant uh, illness. So I know that was a rant. <laughs> One thing that I would share that um, I, I think you both kind of hit the nail on the head with is that um, so much of this, uh, the effort around reimbursement and, um, and payment reform truly does happen at um, the, the federal level and, um, and of course, the state level. And I think um, both of you and your teams at Hillsdale have done a phenomenal job um, developing, uh, you know, true relationships with your lawmakers um, at the state and federal level um, and elevating your voices. I think it can um, be really easy for uh, the, the large health systems across our state and across the country 
um, to elevate their voices. And it could be challenging for our rural members to do that. Um, and it's certainly our role at the MHA to make space um, for all of our members um, and our rural members in particular um, to share pressure points and issues with their elected officials. But mm-hmm. but you at Hillsdale take it um, take it above and beyond um, in terms of the relationships that you've developed um, with your lawmakers, and that's certainly something to to be commended. Well, and and you taught us that. I mean, at the end of the day, MHA has been advocating for years. Uh, you know, lessons are learned are that, you know, those that are uh, appealing to the legislature that are going out to Washington, D.C., and they're going to Lansing for Advocacy Day and all the things that you offer are the ones that are heard. So so that's thanks to to the work that MHA does. Now, um, believe it or not, our time is escaping us here. I, I do want to ask you a few more questions, two more specifically. One is, um, you know, what, what policy... Um, making is happening right now in Lansing that, you know, it's on the horizon right now uh, that that you are watching that maybe our listeners should be aware of. And, and these are folks that are listening, you know, from a hospital setting, um, office settings. What, what should be what what should be uh, uh, the awareness level? Yeah, that's a, an excellent question. And I'm I'm confident that my colleague Adam probably talked about nurse staffing ratios. Um, and uh, our significant opposition to that legislation and the detrimental impact that that um, would have if passed on our hospitals and health systems across the state. Um, so I won't dive into that. Um, but I would share, um, again, I, I would draw your uh, folks' attention to behavioral health. Um, there have been uh, countless news articles and stories and interviews um, about the challenges that we're seeing in the behavioral health space. And I think that for many years now, we've done an excellent job identifying the challenges, but haven't necessarily proposed any solutions. Um, And so we're excited at the the MHA to have a a package, a behavioral health bill package um, that contains seven bills um, that we are uh, working with our um, lawmakers um, to have introduced in, um, in this new year. Um, This is certainly going to take a considerable amount of um, of support and advocacy over um, the foreseeable future. Um, but much of that uh, bill package does have some solutions to some of the problems that we've heard about um, from our members and from others um, for uh, for quite a while now. Um, and I would also note that that package is informed um, by data. Um, and we are pretty passionate at the NHA about making data uh, data-informed policy decisions. Um, and so mm-hmm. we've had an emergency department uh, behavioral health boarding survey in the field for about eight months now, um, where we've been collecting um, data from hospitals and health systems across the state um, to help us understand the magnitude of the behavioral health um, ED boarding issue. Um, because really, if, if a patient is presenting at the emergency department with a behavioral health need, it's, it's a failure of our system because there should be so many other avenues um, and methods for a patient that needs behavioral health services to receive that care outside of the emergency department, that if we have a boarding crisis um, going on in our hospitals, we we know that we have a problem afoot. Um, so mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. for listeners, keep an eye out um, for uh, additional work in the behavioral health space and hopefully some um, legislation being introduced um, to bring some partners together and make some positive change. Good. My last question for you today is, 
what excites you about the uh, approaching year? You know, obviously we're almost February 1. Um, but what are you looking forward to the most, Lauren? You know, what in your job, you know, what is, what's exciting you to think, you know what, if we can accomplish X or I'm really passionate about Y, what is that? I think that we are going to have, I think we're going to have a really exciting year with a couple of um, of issues that we've been working on for a number, a number of months now. But I would say that um, I hope that we can make some tangible improvements in the equity space. Um, I, I think that um, we have, um, all of our hospitals and health systems have signed on to a health equity um, pledge, um, committing to making improvements in the equity space. Um, and our hospitals and health systems certainly play a role in that. Um, but moving the needle on some of those um, disparate outcomes can be really hard. Um, so I'm hopeful that this year we'll be able um, to really make some tangible improvements um, for uh, our, our hospital staff that are providing really excellent care and also for the, the patients that are coming to our hospitals and health systems across mm-hmm. the state. Mm-hmm. Well, that's certainly uh, lofty yeah. and a lot <laughs> to look forward to. Uh, it's a major undertaking, but uh, I know you're up for it. So, Lauren, it's uh, always a pleasure to have you here on our podcast to learn what's happening here in Michigan as it relates to the legislature, some of the work that's being done in advocacy, and how you're helping rural hospitals just like Hillsdale. So thanks for the great work that you do each and every day. We're so excited to have you back uh, next year. Maybe you'll be doctor. <laughs> Maybe so. Lapine, you think so? (laughs) Maybe? One could only hope. All right, we'll make sure we do that in tandem with your graduation, okay? So thanks for joining us again today on Rural Health Rising. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And before we close, we'd love to do a fun segment with each of our guests. You would have answered this question before, but uh, we want to know... You know, folks that are listening to this podcast are, you know, from big cities and states that they don't know rural. You know, so when we talk about rural health rising, you know, we like to have a little fun segment with it. Like, okay, describe rural life for someone who's out there listening. Uh, I had a cousin who was uh, in Troy, Michigan, and that's not metro, but uh, never had visited a farm, never been outside of Troy. In fact, she thought, you know, like uh, parts of uh, Bloomfield Hills was country. And so uh, we brought her here to, to the farm. And, you know, the first interaction was Amish. Like, what is that? Is this, is, is, there, is there a play going on? Is this, is it, I'm like, no, this is, oh these, these are Lord. people. She and then, it was a historic but, reenactment. But seriously, yeah, but seriously, think about it. So those listening today who don't know anything about rule, what is one of your most memorable rule experiences or something that's unique to rural life that you, that you remember that you can relate to and maybe uh, fill our listeners in about that rural living? Well, if, if you'll humor me on this, because I know we're short on time, but you you made me laugh because you brought up the, the Amish population and the uniqueness that that can um, uh, have in a rural space. And I got a, a text message this morning from one of our staff at the MAJ who received a photo from a rural hospital CEO. Um, and the, the there was the photo, which I'll tell you, that had a caption that said, I love working in rural. You still have to find um, parking for the horses. And it was oh, a photo no. of um, the, the Amish buggy parking in front of the emergency department. Um, That's hilarious. So it's, That's it's, hilarious. It's, very, it's spot on um, for our conversation today. Um, but what I would share is that both of my, um, both of my parents are from the Upper Peninsula, the Upper Peninsula um, and they're from two towns that are about six miles apart. Um, my entire family basically lives in the Upper Peninsula, but I was oh. born below the bridge. 
So I get the um, favorable name of being called a troll. troll. Uh, oh, yes. And this year at uh, at Christmas time, we were up in the UP. It was like six in the morning and we stopped in McDonald's to get coffee before making the drive below the bridge. And as I'm grabbing the bag from um, the uh, the really kind cashier, she all of a sudden noticed my dad and they realized that they went to high school together literally like <laughs> years ago. Oh my goodness. Immediately started talking about all the nicknames for folks in, in high school and catching up. And um, I raised that story because that is to me, the power of rural. Um, sure you can't see someone for, you know, 30 years and you immediately start checking in on how the person is, what's new in their life, talking about their kids and grandkids. Um, and that is, I think that's quite special and pretty unique to rural communities. Um, Absolutely. So that's one of my favorite memories as of recent. So then the, probably the, the coffee was cold, yes. you know, and it's like, dad, come on. <laughs> By the time the chat yeah. ended. Yeah, that does happen. That does happen. Well, yeah. a great story. And again, thanks for joining us today and for sharing your passion. Thank you so much for having me. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.